October 15, 1946. Within the prison walls of the Nuremberg Palace of Justice, the Nazi prisoners slated for execution laid silently on their beds and anxiously paced their cells, all the while overhearing the noise and commotion of hammers, saws, and the thudding of wood in the distance. Their gallows were being constructed in the gymnasium of the courthouse. A small pool of observers were being assembled to watch, and the formerly hailed Aryan supermen replayed the year's events over and over in their minds. It was execution day, and eleven elite men of Hitler's Third Reich had been issued the death penalty for their crimes against humanity. But one of the Nazi leaders was determined to avoid his fate of hanging like a common criminal. He held out hope until the last minute that he could be killed with the honor and respect that an armed forces officer was entitled to. The tribunal judge repeatedly dismissed his request for a firing squad and instead condemned him to the noose, like the lowly cowards, traitors, and deserters from World War I. And as the final boards were being nailed into the drop platform, a prison guard stared through the viewing glass into cell HWG. The previously exalted Reichsmarschall was twitching and moaning abnormally on his little cot. Prison officials rushed in, but it was too late. The kill pill had already been broken inside his mouth. The potassium cyanide was already in his esophagus. And in less than a couple minutes, he was officially pronounced dead. The second highest ranking Nazi of the Third Reich, Hermann Goering, had escaped the hangman and managed to make one final act of defiance against the Allies, the law, and justice itself. Welcome to Smoke-Filled Rooms, a political true crime podcast exploring history's most infamous governments, parties, leaders, policies, and discontents. Hosted by Gregory Zink. The Nuremberg Trials. Prosecuting Nazi Atrocities. Part 5. The final defense cases were now at hand for the tribunal to hear. These were the organizations that were responsible for carrying out the decrees of Hitler's fascist government. These groups were some of the most notorious historical clusters of evil that the world had ever known. They were the core of political leaders, the SA, the SS, the Gestapo, the SD, the Reich Cabinet, and Nazi High Command. But before we hear their cases, we have to note that prior to the trial's commencement, the tribunal had publicly issued a nationally-based right to appeal for any citizens who were members of any of these organizations. This appeal could potentially exempt them from criminal charges should they present a credible case to the court, or if they cooperated with the post-war officials in seeding documents, evidence, or direct testimony against their superiors, they could make a deal. Newspapers, radio advertisements, and announcement flyers were circulated widely throughout Germany from October of 1945 to the summer of 1946. They urged average Germans to come forward with their stories and experiences to better understand the legal situation, to provide cover for innocent or violently compelled parties 
and to present an avenue of legally based pardons for those deemed truthful in their written statements. Up to this point in the trial, almost 50,000 Germans who were a party to the organizations being prosecuted at Nuremberg willfully put their names forth as seeking exemption from punishment. Although, in all likelihood, this amounted to about 15 to 20 percent of the total memberships of those organizations combined. This relatively low turnout rate was due to an overarching fear that the trial had produced among the former Reich citizenry. Their collective anxieties ran high as the Nuremberg Tribunal moved forward. This was because large swaths of the German public were concerned that if the organizations they worked for were deemed criminal, then that would mean that hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of regular Germans, could be held liable for the crimes of Hitler's totalitarian project. And despite Justice Jackson's public pronouncements that the United States was not interested in spanning the globe to prosecute clerks, mechanics, janitors, and secretaries, many people were skeptical of their alleged goodwill. At some basic level, they knew quite well what Germany had done, and they were not about to trust a country that had just vanquished them to be the arbiters of good faith legal action. The definitions of what was to be considered official and criminal membership in the organizations was fraught with competing legal interpretations of the prosecutorial delegations and of the judges themselves, the evidence and arguments of which would evolve as the trial continued onward. The defense team began by presenting their case for the core of political leaders. This organization, if one were to even call them as such, were a loose-knit affiliation of party officials who stuck to political activities for the National Socialists. Ranking Reich leaders, who were directly responsible for reporting to Hitler, and regional leaders, who were responsible for reporting to Reich leaders, were already represented among the defendants, but the prosecution felt they were worthy enough to be tried. They had indeed posited the idea that, quote, the members of the leadership corps themselves actively participated in the commission of illegal measures in the aid of a general criminal conspiracy, and that in light of the evidence, the leadership corps could be fairly described as the brain, backbone, and directive arms of the Nazi party. Its responsibilities were more massive and comprehensive than those of the army of followers it led and directed them in the assault against the peace-loving peoples of the world." End quote. For if it had not been for the party hacks and functionaries organizing support and implementing local measures, it was argued that a large chunk of the Nazi machine would have broken down quite rapidly. The German defense started out by delineating low-level members from ranking members who may or may not have had influence or direct access to high command. They succinctly demonstrated how block leaders, party members tasked with literally overseeing a community of no more than a few city blocks, were only the first link between the party and the people. They presented evidence showing that many block leaders were often coerced into service they were very poorly paid, and that their duties were overwhelmingly a part-time job. It was furthermore noted that once the war had started, the low-level political operatives were preoccupied with collecting donations, erecting signs and posters, and organizing humanitarian assistance after Allied bombing raids. 
and as perverse as it may seem to an outsider that someone would willfully organize support for Nazism, report subversives to authorities, and cooperate in pogroms against the Jews, these things were not war crimes or in any way conspiratorial to any of the counts of the indictment. The overwhelming crux of the defense argument were that the political leaders of the Nazi party were helpless pawns being dictated to by Hitler and high command. They should be viewed as operatives with varying levels of culpability because of their functionary and organizing roles as opposed to a policy creation team. The next organization to put its case forward was the Gestapo. They were the secret police of the Third Reich and one that is succinctly summarized by historian Jacques Delarue. Quote, Every totalitarian regime, whether it claims to be on the right or the left, relies upon a powerful political police to ruthlessly crush dissent. The existence of an opponent, however weak it may be, is incompatible with a totalitarian system. And Nazism gave birth to the most inhuman, the most perverse, and the most murderous police system ever conceived of by man. In order to secure its power, the German people had to be brought to heel. And in 1933, Hermann Goering, the founder of the Gestapo, he relieved the Home Secretary by decree of all authority over the organization. And from there on out, all the German people were put under surveillance. Never before has an organization attained such complexity, been vested with such power, and reached such a perfection and efficiency and horror. The Gestapo will remain in human memory as the example of a social instrument perverted by unscrupulous individuals. The powers and weapons entrusted to it at the outset to assure the protection of its citizens, their rights and their liberties, are no more than the means of enslavement and death. For gang rule prevailed. And most of the accused, they felt no remorse and seemed incapable of apprehending the situation. The proceedings taken against them for their crimes seemed to them an act of vengeance exercised by the conqueror. And paradoxically, it was in this view that they accepted their fate, for this was an idea that they could understand, for they themselves had acted in this manner. Unquote. So as contradictory and on some level ironic as it was, the Gestapo would have their day in court, something that they rarely afforded to people under their control since 1933. Rudolf Merkel led the defense for the Gestapo, but this was going to be a mostly useless endeavor. He was largely relegated to stressing the low-level and administrative roles that made up a healthy portion of the organization. And he also attempted to sidestep the charges of mass arrests torture as a widely utilized tool of interrogation, the execution of political opponents, and the use of hostages to achieve their ends. The defense called 12 witnesses to the stand, and many of them attempted to obfuscate their personal roles within the criminal conspiracies. Instead, they pointed fingers at the SS. One such witness, Walter Albath, the former Gestapo head of Königsberg, he denied that they carried out mass executions. He claimed that he did not know of Heydrich's Order No. 14 and No. 8, which were pieces of evidence entered by the Soviet delegation. He was then presented with these exhibits, and it was easily demonstrated that the orders were sent to all Gestapo offices, and that they were indeed directed to carry out mass executions. And more damningly so, 
that before carrying out said executions, killing squad leaders were to confer directly with Gestapo officials. And furthermore still, the executions were to be held outside the limits of the camps and be made, quote, as quiet as possible, unquote. The defense rejected many of the prosecutorial claims about knowledge of the Holocaust and the liquidation of Jewish peoples. They instead chose to point the blame at Himmler, Heydrich, and the SS for all the crimes on which they had been implicated. The Gestapo also maintained that they were predominantly a police force who also worked at intelligence gathering. It was admitted that yes, the Gestapo was well aware of the concentration camps, but not necessarily the extermination camps. These were overwhelmingly the SS's responsibility. They more so saw their role as being a political enforcement mechanism that attempted to derail anti-Nazi sentiment, speech, and action by all legal means necessary. They admitted to using third-degree interrogation techniques, but only on a limited scale and with great success. For those who are unfamiliar, third-degree interrogation is essentially torture. Third-degree techniques are explained as being, quote, the use of interrogation methods that inflict physical or mental pain on suspects in order to get them to make a confession. A suspect being beaten by police until the suspect eventually confesses to stop the pain is just one small example. Suspects were blindfolded and beaten, whipped, burned, disfigured, maimed, and made to watch as their families were beaten and murdered. It was hard to imagine, in light of the massive prosecution case, that the Gestapo would, as an organization, be able to refute the evidence against it. They only offered up ignorance and deflection as a defense. And in the end, it would be their own highly organized and detailed records that would do them in. For one of the cornerstones of superior police work is record-keeping, and the Nazi regime insisted upon an even more stringent system when it came to data collection. One that would eventually damn them all to jail cells, or the gallows. The final defense case to be presented was that of the SS. Himmler's infamous Schutzstaffel, or Protection Squad. They were the dreaded elite black suit-wearing paramilitary unit of Nazi Germany. This organization consisted of three branches the Allemine, the Waffen-SS, and the Totenkampferbande. Their case took six days to hear. The primary defense tactic of this portion of the trial was to insist that the SS was not a collective enterprise of premeditated criminality. Rather, it was an overarching system of satellite installments that knew little, if anything, of what the other units were doing. In this manner, it could be argued that only Heinrich Himmler, as chief of the SS, knew what the endgame was in regards to the concentration camps, the Jews, and the mass atrocities. A former Nazi judge was called to the stand, and he attempted to outline his case that the SS prosecuted members who were seen to be sadistic and stepping outside of legal boundaries when dealing with their prisoners. When asked about the state of degeneracy the camps were found in when they were liberated by the Allied forces, Judge Reinick replied that, quote, Yes, 
frightful atrocities were committed in the camps, but the film doesn't show the total effect of the German Reich and its collapse. It does not, therefore, represent normal conditions in these places. The normal conditions were quite different. We had investigating commissions in the concentration camps, which reported to me immediately on their conditions. If the legal authorities of the SS and the police were in a position to take steps against such conditions, then it was only because these conditions were not the result of a consistent policy of the SS, but were caused by criminal acts of individual persons or small groups and by a few highly placed superiors. But these things were not committed by the SS as an organization. The legal authorities took steps in order to fight against these crimes and to eliminate such criminal elements from the SS itself." End quote. He went on to describe how subsequent investigations were yielding increasing numbers of crimes being committed by rogue SS officers, but that charges were being blocked by ranking SS administrator Oswald Pohl. He insisted that, quote, everything in the concentration camps was secret. Only with special passes and credentials was it possible to enter them for surveillance. Everything about the work being done by the detainees was secret, ostensibly because V-weapons were being produced. Correspondence from beyond the concentration camps was also secret, and for that reason, could not be checked at all." End quote. And despite his adamant protestations, he was being continuously undermined and shown evidence contradicting his claims. But Judge Reinke, he held to his story about SS men being largely innocent of crimes despite the lone wolf tactics of men like Camp Commandants Haas and Koch. He claimed to have prosecuted such criminals as much as humanly possible, and he only learned a partial extent of what the final solution was all about in late 1944. He said that they had indeed discovered gas chambers, but that they had no evidence of how frequently they were being utilized. Next to the stand was an SS blood judge named George Conrad Morgan, who painted a fanciful picture of the concentration camps. He claimed to have investigated them personally, and speaking of Buchenwald, said this, quote, A concentration camp is not a place for the extermination of human beings. I must say that my first visit to a concentration camp, I mentioned was the first one was Weimar Buchenwald, and it was a great surprise to me. The camp is situated on wooded heights with a wonderful view. The installations were clean and freshly painted. There was much lawn and flowers to be seen. The prisoners were healthy, normally fed, suntanned, and working peacefully. The camp authorities aimed at providing the prisoners with an existence worthy of human beings. They had regular mail service. They had a large camp library, even books in foreign languages. They had a variety of shows, motion pictures, sporting contests, and even had a brothel. Nearly all the concentration camps were like this." End quote. A moment of gallows humor emerged when Chief Justice Lawrence couldn't understand the word brothel. He asked the witness to repeat, and when he still couldn't understand, Justice Biddle leaned across the judge's desk and said, Brothel, Jeffrey, brothel. And Biddle accidentally switched on his courtside microphone in the process of leaning over. And Biddle's pronouncements to Lawrence were projected into the courtroom loudly when he said, quote, Whorehouses, bordellos, you know, Jeffrey, a brothel, you know, a brothel, end quote. 
Giggles intermittently bubbled up from the audience during this process. Another witness testified about his observations outside of an experimental chamber where the victims were subjected to high and low pressure environments. Quote, I have seen personally through the observation window of the chamber when a prisoner inside would stand a vacuum until his lungs ruptured. Some experiments gave men such pressure in their heads that they would go mad and pull out their hair in an effort to relieve the pressure. They would tear at their heads and faces with their fingers and nails in an attempt to maim themselves in their madness. They would beat the walls with their heads and scream in an effort to relieve pressure on their eardrums. These cases of extremes of vacuums generally ended in death. An extreme experiment was so certain to result in death that in many instances the chamber was used for routine execution purposes rather than as an experimental chamber. I have known Rasher's experiments to subject a prisoner to vacuum conditions or extreme pressure conditions or combinations of both for as long as 30 minutes. The experiments were generally classified into two groups, one known as the living experiments and the other simply as the X experiments, which was a way of saying execution experiment, unquote. It was all coming together now. The camps, the genocide, the indignities, the suffering, and the experiments, all at the hands of the SS and their branches. Justice would weigh heavily upon the verdict these organizations would receive. The defense officially rested after cross-examination. It was now time for the closing remarks. Each prosecutorial delegation meant to leave a definitive, eloquent, and insightful mark upon the trial while simultaneously highlighting their own national perspective. The French, British, American, and Soviet teams were to restate their case and uniquely highlight the destruction and brutality their nation had endured but eventually overcame. This would ultimately reveal itself to be an exercise infusing political philosophy, war experience, and nationally propelled ideals. Prosecutor Auguste Champtier de Ribes of the French delegation was the first to conclude their case. Quote, All the facts have been presented with strict objectivity, leaving no room for passion nor even of sensibility. The tribunal have excluded from the proceedings everything that, in their opinion, seemed insufficiently proven, everything that appears to be dictated by a spirit of vengeance. For the chief concern of this trial is above all historical truth. At length, Nazi Germany unveiled her plans for expansion and world domination by organizing the systemic extermination of the peoples whose territories she had occupied. This operation was carried out at first, as we have shown, by the political, economic and moral destruction of the occupied territories. The methods employed were the brutal or gradual seizure of power or carefully calculated infiltration of German authority in every single sphere. The preparation of a program of economic pillage and its pitiless execution was to lead to the exhaustion of the occupied country and to put it at the absolute mercy of the occupying power. In a word, the Nazification of the state and the people as well as the destruction of cultural and moral values. You know the crime. You know why and by what means it was perpetrated. 
This heinous and unprecedented crime is that of the National Socialist Party state. But the defendants in their capacity as chiefs of the Nazi party and as high state officials have all accepted major responsibility in the conception and perpetration of these crimes. Their participation in the crime of the party state is their own personal fault and brings with it no claim whatsoever to immunity. Proof has now been brought against them. These men must be punished. You know also the dangers to which the world is exposed by their crime and the misery and misfortune it has brought to mankind at large. You must hit hard and without pity. To be sure, there are degrees of guilt. Does it follow that there must be degrees in the penalties themselves? When those whom we consider the least guilty merit the death penalty? When this international trial is over and the principal war criminals are sentenced, we shall go back to our own countries where we may have to prosecute before our own tribunals, those who merely carried out the orders of the National Socialist State and who only played the part of the hangman. How could we demand the death penalty for another Kramer or for another Haas or for other camp commandants who have on their conscience the deaths of millions of human creatures whom they killed by order? We cannot hesitate today to demand the supreme penalty for those who were the driving force of the criminal state which gave these orders. The fate of these men lies entirely with your conscience. It is now out of our hands. Our task is finished. Now, it is for you in the silence of your deliberations to heed the voice of the innocent blood crying for justice." Unquote. Next to present a closing argument was Sir Hartley Shawcross for the English delegation. A man who had quickly shown himself to be a brilliant legal mind and who possessed a unique oratorical brilliance. And as eloquent and intriguing as his arguments were, it was the rhetorical traps he set that so charmed the courtroom and enraptured the judges. But in this instance, he chose to focus the near entirety of his speech upon the crimes that were committed. Instead of getting bogged down in philosophical idealism or national jingoism, Shawcross stuck to the facts and reiterated and reminded the court why in fact they assembled to begin with. Quote, Total and totalitarian war, waged in defiance of solemn undertakings and in breach of treaties. Great cities, from Coventry to Stalingrad, reduced to rubble. The countryside laid to waste. And now the inevitable aftermath of war, fought with hunger and disease stalking throughout the world, millions of people are left homeless, maimed, and bereaved. And in their graves, crying out, not for vengeance, but that this shall not happen again, ten million who might be living in peace and happiness at this hour, soldiers, sailors, airmen, and civilians killed in battles that ought never to have happened. Nor was that the only or the greatest crime. In all our countries, when perhaps in the heat of passion or for other motives which impair restraint, some individual is killed, the murder becomes a sensation. Our compassion is aroused. Nor do we rest until the criminal is punished and the rule of law is vindicated. Shall we do no less but not of the lowest computation of 12 million men, women, and children who are now in death? Not in battle, not in passion, 
but in the cold, calculated, deliberate attempt to destroy nations and races, to disintegrate the traditions, the institutions, and the very existence of free and ancient states. Twelve million murders, two-thirds of the Jews in Europe exterminated, and more than six million of them of the killer's own accord. Murder conducted like some mass-production industry in the gas chambers and the ovens of Auschwitz, Dachau, Treblinka, Buchenwald, Mauthausen, Majdanek, and Oranienburg. And is the world to overlook the revival of slavery in Europe? Slavery on a scale which involves 7 million men, women, and children taken from their homes, treated as beasts, starved, beaten, and murdered? It may be that the guilt of Germany will not be erased, for the people of Germany share it in a large measure. But it was these men who, with a handful of others, brought that guilt upon Germany and perverted the German people. There is one group to which the method of annihilation was applied on a scale so immense that it is my duty to refer separately to the evidence. I mean the extermination of the Jews. If there were no other crime against these men, this one alone, in which all of them were implicated, would suffice. History holds no parallel to these horrors. In one way, the fate of these men means little. Their personal power for evil lies forever broken. They have convicted and discredited each other and finally destroyed the legend that they created round the figure of their leader. But on their fate, great issues still must depend. For the ways of truth and righteousness between the nations of the world, the hope of future international cooperation in the administration of law and justice are in your hands. This trial must form a milestone in the history of civilization, not only bringing retribution to these guilty men, not only marking that the right shall in the end triumph over evil, but also that the ordinary people of the world, and I make no distinction now between friend or foe, are not determined that the individual must transcend the state. The state and the law are made for men, that through them he may achieve a fuller life, a higher purpose, and a greater dignity. States may be great and powerful. Ultimately, the rights of men, made as all men are made in the image of God, are fundamental. When the state either because here its leaders have lusted for power and place, or under some specious pretext that the end may justify the means, affronts these things. They may for a time become obscured and submerged. But they are imminent, and ultimately they will assert themselves more strongly still, their imminence more manifest. And so, after this ordeal to which mankind has been submitted, Mankind itself struggling now to re-establish in all the countries of the world the common simple things, liberty, love, understanding, comes to this court and cries, These are our laws. Let them prevail. Unquote. The steely General Redenko of the Soviet delegation followed the French. Their closing remarks primarily focused on the uniquely horrific nature of the crimes they and their satellite states had endured. For they had experienced mass starvations, genocide of their peoples, extreme ideological oppression, deportations, and the bloodiest battle sites of the entire war. 
and though they undoubtedly took the brunt of the casualties, destruction, and hardship, they were also magnificently silent about their own crimes and occupations. It could be argued, in fact, that many in the Soviet leadership should have been seated in the dock right alongside Goering and Hess. But it is also true that without the Russian war effort, the Nazis would have almost certainly conquered the whole of Europe. And on top of this, would have fought the Allies to a stalemate while still holding the geographic spoils of Western Europe. So surprisingly on the one hand, but completely understandable on the other, was the Soviet delegation's overarching appeal to universal values in their final remarks. For though their ideology was expansionist and global in scope, they had just been through a uniquely nationalistic period where they could credibly argue for the Soviet communist supremacy. General Rodanko took a different tone with his remarks. Quote, In the course of this trial, all the aspects of the case and all the evidence presented to the tribunal by the prosecution and by the defense have been subjected to careful and detailed scrutiny. Not a single deed of which the defendants have been accused of has been left without verification. Not a single significant circumstance has been overlooked during the investigation of the present case. So for the first time in the history of mankind, criminals against humanity are being held responsible for their crimes before an international criminal tribunal. For the first time, nations are trying those who have soaked large areas of the earth with blood, who have annihilated millions of innocent people, who have destroyed cultural treasures, who instituted a systemic massacre and torture system, who exterminated old people, women and children, and who in their mad desire for world domination have hurled the universe into an abyss of unprecedented misery. This trial, to be sure, it's the first of its kind in legal history. A tribunal is sitting in judgment, a tribunal created by the peace, free-loving countries of the world who represent the desire of mankind for progress and to prevent the recurrence of calamities suffered. They are determined not to permit a gang of criminals to carry out with impunity their preparations for the enslavement of nations and the extermination of peoples in the realization of their fanatic plans. Mankind has called these criminals to account, and we, the prosecutors, on behalf of all of mankind, are the accusers at this trial. And now, the hour of reckoning has finally come. For the past nine months, we have been observing the former rulers of fascist Germany, in the dock, before this courtroom, they have suddenly become meek and humble, and some of them have even actually condemned Hitler. But they do not blame Hitler for waging war, or for exterminating the peoples of Europe, and of plundering of the states. The only thing that they cannot forgive him for is their defeat. Together with Hitler, they were ready to exterminate millions of human beings, to enslave civilized mankind in order to achieve their criminal aim of world domination. But history has decided otherwise. Victory did not follow upon the steps of crime. Truth triumphed, and we are proud to say that justice meted out by the International Military Tribunal will be the justice of the righteous cause of peace-loving nations. The defense spoke about humanity. We know that the concepts of civilization and humanity, democracy and humanity, peace and humanity, are inseparable. But we, the champions of civilization, democracy, and peace, we positively reject that form of humanity which is considerate to the murderers and indifferent to their victims. The counsel for Kaltenbrunner, he also spoke here of a love for mankind. In connection with Kaltenbrunner's name and actions, 
Any mention of love for mankind sounds like utter blasphemy. Your Lordship, Your Honours, my statement concludes the case for the prosecution. Speaking here on behalf of the peoples of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, I consider all the charges against all the defendants as fully proven. And in the name of a sincere love for mankind, which inspires the peoples who made the supreme sacrifice before being slaughtered by a gang of murderers who are now before the court of civilized mankind. We, in the name of the happiness and the peaceful labor of future generations, appeal to the tribunal to sentence all the defendants, without exception, to the supreme penalty, death. Such a verdict will be greeted with satisfaction by all of progressive mankind. Unquote. Finally, the last prosecutor stood at the podium to deliver his closing remarks. Justice Jackson ruthlessly attacked the defense and almost single-handedly destroyed the credibility of all the men in the dock with these remarks. This speech reasserted his unparalleled role in being the moral compass, the rock of justice, and the voice of an idealistic United States that would venture into the post-war world with optimism and high-minded values. Dressed in a black suit and proper bow tie, Justice Jackson arguably stole the show once again with his final remarks before the tribunal. Quote, A glance over at the dock will show that, despite quarrels amongst themselves, each defendant played a part which fitted in with every other, and that all advanced the same common plan. It contradicts experience that men of such diverse backgrounds and talents should so forward each other's aims by coincidence. The large and varied role of Goering was half militarist and half gangster. He stuck his pudgy finger into every pie. He used his SA muscleman to help bring the gang into power. In order to entrench that power, he contrived to have the Reichstag burned, established the Gestapo, and created the concentration camps. He was equally adept at massacring opponents and at framing scandals to get rid of stubborn generals. He built up the Luftwaffe and hurled it at his defenseless neighbors. He was among the foremost in hurrying Jews out of the land. And by mobilizing the total economic resources of Germany, he made possible the waging of war, which he had taken a large part in the planning of. He was next to Hitler, the man who tied the activities of all the defendants together in a common effort. The parts played by the other defendants, although less comprehensive and less spectacular than that of the Reichsmarschall, were nevertheless integral and necessary contributions to the joint undertaking, without which the success of the common enterprise would have been put in jeopardy. There are many specific deeds of which these men have been proven guilty. No purpose would be served, nor indeed is time available to review all the crimes which the evidence has charged upon their names. Nevertheless, in viewing the conspiracy as a whole and as an operating mechanism, it may be well to recall briefly the outstanding services which each of the men in the dock rendered to the common cause. The zealot Hess, before succumbing to wanderlust, was the engineer tending the party machinery, 
passing orders and propaganda down to the leadership corps, supervising every aspect of party activities and maintaining the organization as a loyal and ready instrument of power. When apprehensions abroad threatened the success of the Nazi regime for conquest, it was the duplicitous Ribbentrop, the salesman of deception, who was detailed to pour wine on the troubled waters of suspicion by preaching the gospel of limited and peaceful intentions. Keitel, the weak and willing tool, delivered the armed forces, the instrument of aggression, over to the party and directed them in executing its felonious designs. Kaltenbrunner, the Grand Inquisitor, took up the bloody mantle of Hydra to stifle opposition and terrorize compliance, and buttressed the power of National Socialism on a foundation of guiltless corpses. Then it was Rosenberg, the intellectual high priest of the master race, who provided the doctrine of hatred which gave the impetus for the annihilation of Jewry, and who put his infidel theories into practice against the Eastern European occupied territories. His woolly philosophy also added boredom to the long list of Nazi atrocities. Then the fanatical Frank, who solidified Nazi control by establishing the new order of authority without law, so that the will of the party was the only test of legality. He proceeded to export his lawlessness to Poland, which he governed with the lash of Caesar and whose population he reduced to sorrowing remnants. Julius Stryker, he manufactured and distributed obscene racial libels which incited the populace to accept and assist the progressively savage operations of racial purification. As Minister of Economics, Walter Funk accelerated the pace of rearmament, and as Reichsbank President for the SS, the gold teeth fillings of concentration camp victims became probably the most ghoulish collateral in banking history. Then it was shocked the facade of starched respectability, who in the early days provided the window dressing, the bait for the hesitant, and whose wizardry later made it possible for Hitler to finance the colossal rearmament program and to do it secretly. Dinitz, Hitler's legacy of defeat, promoted the success of the Nazi aggressions by instructing his pack of submarine killers to conduct warfare at sea with the illegal ferocity of the jungle. Eric Radar, the political admiral, he stealthily built up the German Navy in defiance of the Versailles Treaty and then put it to use in a series of aggressions which he had taken a leading part in planning. Baron von Schirach, the poisoner of a generation, initiated the German youth in Nazi doctrine, trained them in legions for service in the SS and the Wehrmacht, and delivered them up to the party as fanatic, unquestioning executors of its will. Sokol, the greatest and cruelest slaver since the pharaohs of Egypt. He produced desperately needed manpower by driving foreign peoples into the land of bondage on a scale unknown even in the ancient days of tyranny in the kingdom of the Nile. Alfred Yodel, the betrayer of traditions of his profession, he led the Wehrmacht in violating its own code of military honor in order to carry out the barbarous aims of Nazi policy. Minister von Poppen, pious agent of an infidel regime, held the stirrup while Hitler vaulted into the saddle, lubricated the Austrian annexation, and devoted his diplomatic cunning to the service of Nazi objectives abroad. Seisinquart, 
He spearheaded the Austrian fifth column, took over the government of his own country, only to make a present of it to Hitler later, and then, moving north, brought terror and oppression to the Netherlands and pillaged its economy for the benefit of the German juggernaut. Von Neurath, the old-school diplomat who cast the pearls of his experience before the Nazis, guided Nazi diplomacy in the early years, soothed the fears of prospective victims, and, as Reich protector of Bohemia and Moravia, strengthened the German position for the coming attack on Poland. And Speer, as Minister of Armaments and Production, joined in planning and executing the program to dragoon prisoners of war and foreign workers into the German war industries, which waxed in output while the laborers waned in starvation. Frisia, radio propaganda chief, by manipulation of the truth, goaded German public opinion into frenzied support of the regime and soothed the independent judgment of the population so that they did without question their master's bidding. And of course, Bormann, who has not accepted our invitation to this reunion, he sat at the throttle of the vast and powerful engine of the party, guiding it in the ruthless execution of Nazi policies, from the scourging of the Christian church to the lynching of captive Allied airmen. Unquote. The trial was nearly complete, and in episode 6 of this Nuremberg trial series, we will hear the final statements and pleas from the Nazi defendants. Would they beg for their lives or brazenly defy the tribunal and their verdicts? Was letting them speak freely a wise decision? And could they credibly declare a fair trial if these men were not allowed to say their peace? History and justice were indeed hanging in the balance. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Smoke-Filled Rooms kindly asks that you consider donating to the show with whatever you can offer. We would like to be 100% crowdfunded, so we have created PayPal, Patreon, and crypto appreciation jars. They can be found at smokefilledrooms.net or on any of the Smoke-Filled Rooms social media accounts, such as Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Locals. Thank you in advance for your generous and much appreciated contributions. Smoke-Filled Rooms is a completely independent podcast that is created, written, hosted, produced, and engineered by me, Gregory Zink, and falls under the umbrella of Zink Publishing Incorporated. Additional voicing for the episodes is from the lovely Shari Maharaj, and cinematography for the YouTube videos was by Matthew Zink. Cheers, and thank you again for listening.